Thanks for joining me today on my podcast career chat, where my goal is to create a community of people who share their knowledge and experience about careers. Today, I'm so excited to welcome my guest, Jana Emmer, to the podcast. Jana and I first met many years ago when she was a PhD student in art history at Penn State University, and my husband and I were there for his graduate degree. She has since taught at Ohio Wesleyan University, the University of Tennessee, and Bucknell University. Jana joined the Museum of Art at Brigham Young University in 2014 as MOA's head of education and a curator. At the end of August this year, Jana was named associate director of the Museum of Art, where she provides oversight of various departments, including education and design. I visited the museum at the beginning of 2020 to see Jana's work, and I was so impressed. I can't wait to talk to Jana about art and her career. Let's jump in. Welcome, Jana. I am so delighted to have you join me today. And I just want to say congratulations on your promotion to Associate Director of the MOA. I think that is so amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's really my pleasure to talk over these things. I love the idea of your podcast. And I think this is really a fun thing to participate in. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And we have um, gotten to know each other. We got to know each other years ago when um, we were both at Penn State. And I just really appreciated your friendship. And I'm so happy, so happy to reconnect because we had actually talked about some of these career things way back then. And now we have like 12 years of life experience. Experience, yeah. <laughs> so I, I really think this could be beneficial. I know for me and I think maybe for some other people. But before we um, get into your career path, I wanted to ask you if you could just introduce yourself to everybody. Sure, sure. So as you said, my name is Janet Emmer and I grew up in Sandy, Utah. So I'm a uh, uh, Utah native. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I, I mean, just a little bit of background, I guess I went to BYU, and I got my bachelor's and master's degrees um, at BYU. And, and I think as part of this, you know, had a was, was trying to figure out where I wanted to go, and what I wanted to do as an undergrad. Those were always, always all really big questions for me to try to figure out, but eventually landed in art history. And then after my master's went on, I got my PhD at Penn State. So that's kind of my educational background and um, my personal background, I would say, um, you know, I love running and hiking and reading a good book is something that I can do pretty much any time. Uh, <laughs> This is and... why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We both because... like the same things. And and I love that you are surrounded by books now all the time. So that's fantastic. <laughs> it really is. It's it's great. I love it. It's a great job. Yeah. So let me ask Janet, did you um did you get your your undergrad and your master's degree in art history or was that something else so I got my bachelor's degree in humanities and I had you had to kind of have an emphasis at the time so I had my 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 major was humanities and my emphasis was art history 
And um, so I wasn't an art art history major, but by the time I started taking more and more art history classes, um, you know, I I maybe should have been or could have been. (laughs) Uh, But it took me a little while to find that, honestly. It was a tough, uh, I think some people go into college and they just, you know, there are some who know exactly what they want to do, but I I was not one of them. (laughs) I understand that completely. And it really, I had thought a lot about going to med school and um, I thought that, that, you know, being, I had really considered being an OBGYN. I thought that was really exciting. So I thought about that track, but I knew that it was really long and really expensive. Um, So I wasn't quite sure. And um, so I, I took some of those early classes and then I loved I loved humanities classes. I loved the English classes. My mother had had taught English, um, and so we grew up just reading a lot. and And I thought, oh, I that could be a track for me. Uh, so I I took a variety of classes and really had to struggle, I think, to find where I wanted to land. Um, and I eventually just chose kind of my passion, which was those humanities classes. I loved learning about history and culture and I loved the art and the music and the literature, all of those things kind of combined together in the humanities. So that led me the direction. And then when I was finally kind of settling on art history, it was a perfect combination of, I figured out I could travel to go Mm. to museums and amazing places. And so it was really kind of the combination of the travel with the art that sealed me um, to kind of go on and get my master's in art history. And I knew I needed to kind of specialize after my undergrad was a little bit more broad. So that was kind of how I settled in that area. But it was a lot of, I think, experimenting and kind of thinking. And, and I will say even, you know, as as a woman, I think I was trying to, you know, not knowing, like, will I work full time? Will I not? Mm-hmm. Will I have a family? Will I be doing this part time? And, you know, those are those are kind of unknowns that I think you're you're trying to balance a little bit. And especially in our LDS culture um, of really privileging family, which is a great thing. Um, but sometimes women, I think, don't quite know how to choose a career and be thinking about having a family and how that's going to work. And, you know, for me, since I am single and, you know, have been single, um, that, you know, didn't end up being a choice that I had to make, but it did mean that I had to be able to provide for myself. So, you know, those were, questions that were kind of coming up quite a bit as, you know, how will I provide for myself and what am I going to be able to do to, you know, make, pay my rent and live comfortably and those kinds of things. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that is such a uh, interesting thing for women, whether members of the church or not, Mm -hmm. as a woman, you're often trying to project in the future and say, well, do I want to have a family? And if I do, do I want to work? And if I do, what kind of work would I be able to do with my family? And mm-hmm. I love that you were you were thinking about that and that you eventually did settle on art history as something that might might work for you with that. Yeah. Um and I, I think it really it's been great for me. And I have, I will say, just loved that I love traveling 
to different museums and different countries and exploring their culture and seeing their art. So it's something that I still love and is still rewarding to me. That is so great. And we're going to talk more, much more about that in just a minute, because your travel experiences have been great. And I want to bring those up. But before we do that, I want to ask you a little bit about graduate school, because that was initially where we met and we were going through that together. And that (laughs) is that is a hard time. And I I want to spend a few minutes talking about it. I think it's kind of like your first job in your field in some ways. It's a major step toward your career. And it seems like there are some pitfalls and there's tough times that you have to learn how to navigate. Would you agree that it's, it's a lesson in endurance? Absolutely. Endurance and dedication and sheer will to stay. Uh, Yes. You know, graduate school is, um, I think it, it really, you, you really have to want to be there. And particularly when you're doing a doctor program, that's, you know, when you're doing a doctor program that takes a long time, um, it's, it, it's a great experience in that you, it's basically all that you're doing. You're, you're surrounded by faculty members and other graduate students and other people who are pursuing this field as well. So I think it's a time of a lot of of growth intellectually, and it's very stimulating and really exciting. But it also is a kind of pressure cooker mm-hmm. <laughs> of stress and, you know, coming up, I, I can't speak for the sciences uh, or for other fields, but particularly in art history, or I think other types of, of humanity fields. So literature and English and languages and those kinds of things. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure to come up with your original topic that you're going to be researching and writing on and how will that contribute in a unique way to the field and that can feel like a lot of pressure um, to look at scholars that have written so much and think you know what do I have to contribute to this Uh, I think you know that can be a lot of pressure and and figuring out how to do that and how to write your whole dissertation and get a committee to agree um, on the various parts of it. And, you know, just every, there are, you know, a lot of, of hoops that you're jumping through when you're passing your first year coursework and then your exams and your prospectus and all those kinds of things, which really kind of help you along the way. But, um, but it's, it can be very challenging as well. And, um, and I think sometimes it can be just downright discouraging. <laughs> yes. You just, you know, um, I had a lot of colleagues, um, you know, I, I made some of my dearest friends and many of them are people that I still consider my best friends to this day, um, that they made a huge difference in my life. And I'm so grateful for the colleagues and the friends that I made during graduate school. Um, So, you know, that was very, very meaningful. But I will say that I saw, you know, the attrition rate. Um, Mm -hmm. There were just a lot of people that um, drop out of of graduate Mm -hmm. school and that don't make it through. And, um, you know, I don't think that that's always... A bad thing. Um, 
I think sometimes graduate school can really help you refine who you are and what it is that you really want. And, you know, I had some friends who along the way decided, you know, this is costing too much of me, or, you know, this isn't exactly what I want anymore. Um, or it, you know, maybe didn't have the support or the right kind of committee to help them make it through. It can be really challenging. I felt very fortunate that I had um, a really great advisor that I was working with and a committee that was helpful. Um, but I did see, you know, colleagues that decided to drop out. And I was always surprised that sometimes um, it's not always the smartest people that get through. It's those who are just really refusing to quit. <laughs> that's such a great point. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of what I, I, I noticed that as well. Do you feel like um, there was something that you did in graduate school that has paid off for you in your career? Um, that's a really good question. I think Uh, you know, I, I had two, you know, two places where I was doing graduate school, I guess, because BYU, I stayed and did the master's degree. And then mm-hmm. I went on to Penn State um, for, for the doctoral program. And I think when I was here at BYU, I thought the program was also really rigorous and um, a lot of theory and, and classes that helped me get, get a good framework for where I was going. I think because I did it that way, by the time I got to Penn State, I was um, pretty sure that I wanted to be there. I, I thought that mm-hmm. I knew things. And I clearly, as I was going through, I determined there was so much that I did not know. <laughs> and, you know, I had to kind of continually make that decision, right? But um, I think, um, you know, having, I, I did my master's and, and then I worked for a year at the, um, Springville museum and, mm. and I think, you know, that was really helpful for me because I realized, and this may be not true of everyone, but in art history, you, the jobs you're looking for are, are often either to teach or to be in some sort of museum capacity. And it can be a museum or gallery, or it can even be a kind of auction house, the more commercial side. But um, those are generally the, the routes that you're going. And when I finished, I was working for a year at the Springville Museum, which I just have to say is still one of my favorite museums. It's a beautiful museum. And I think that they do such a good job in helping young, young professionals kind of figure out where they want to go. And it was really helpful for me. Um, That said, a lot of times these jobs that you have when you're um, either out of your undergrad or just out of your master's um, are, these are kind of entry level and you're not earning very much money. (laughs) you're Mm -hmm. earning a lot of experience which is Mm -hmm. you know kind of invaluable but you're not earning a lot of money and um and that is going to be generally true in a lot of I think early entry-level positions um probably across fields everywhere you go but it's definitely true in a museum or in the art history field and so I I realized that if I 
wanted to really provide for myself. So, you know, I had finished and I had my master's degree and I was still kind of barely surviving and I was living Mm -hmm. with four roommates and I thought, wow, if I'm going to be able to provide for myself, I think I really need to go on and get my doctorate. So getting a PhD in art history and in your field is really the thing that opens the door for you to get to those highest paid positions in the field. Yes. And I, you're not going to be able to work your way up. If you work at a museum, you're not going to be able to work your way up to one of the higher paid positions. Well, it can, it can depend on the museum and there are, um, uh, curators and educators in museums, um, and even some of the other positions um, in museums, registrars, uh, designers, some of them that, that they don't have, a, they just have a master's degree and they've worked their way up. So I think that is still possible to have a okay. master's degree. And again, depending on where you live, um, how many museums there are and how many people there might be that are interested in those positions can depend on whether you need to get, uh, to go on and get your, your doctoral degree. I will say that in bigger museums, um, that having a doctorate is, is expected. So if you want to go on to, you know, uh, one of the larger institutions I worked at the Getty for a little bit and or if you were going to go to the Met or somewhere those curators do have terminal doctoral degrees so sometimes if you're working in smaller institutions you you um, may be able to build your experience from your master's degree Um, one of my colleagues here has a master's and you know she's just worked her way up for a long time and and is fantastic so there are possibilities um, with a master's degree. I would say that the master's, some kind of graduate degree is really essential. And then you need to determine, you know, where your goals are for the future. I knew, I recognized that I, I thought the doctorate would open up the most doors for me. Um, yeah. Because I knew that I loved teaching and I loved museums. And it seemed like to, to really get a good steady job and to be able to do that in the best way that I wanted would require a doctorate. That's such a good point. And, and you were allowing, you were planning for the fact that you did want to go to that highest point where you had the most options. And if let's say that you have a a bachelor's degree in art history, is that going to kind of be, um, you're going to be limited unless you can open that door through graduate school, whether it's master's or or PhD. Yeah, that's my experience. I would say Mm -hmm. if you do want to go on, um, you know, hopefully as an undergraduate, I'm frequently telling um, undergraduate students that I work with, get as many internships as an undergrad as you possibly can, because that will really help you. But that you're probably going to need to go on and get your master's degree if you really want to, you know, work in a sustained way at a museum. 
That's great advice. Do you have any, um, going back to graduate school really quickly, do you have any advice that you would give to someone applying for graduate school or considering graduate school? Yes. So I would say that you need to look really carefully at the various schools and particularly at your advisor that you're going to work with. So this is something that, you know, you kind of learn along the way, but when you decide, okay, I'm going to go, I want to go on and I'm going to pursue a master's degree or a doctoral degree, you don't really just say, oh, I think I'll go to UCLA because the weather is great there and I hear they have a good program, so I'll just apply there. What you really have to do is look at the faculty members and see who you would be working with. So you really need to know, okay, my, for example, my area that I was interested in studying and pursuing was 19th century Europe and particularly writing on women artists. So you need to look at who's doing that and, and then meet with them, reach out to them, see if they're taking new students, ask their students how they are to work with so that you set yourself up to work with a really good graduate advisor. That, I could, yeah. could not agree with you more. <laughs> yeah. I think the more, the more you know about the people you're going to be working with, even if you know what you want to do your doctoral research on or your doctoral thesis, mm-hmm. the more you know ahead of time, the further along you're going to be. Yeah, exactly. And usually when you're writing and you're applying, you are saying, you know, you're telling them what you want to do, what your field is. So the person that you're going to be working with is going to be reading that. And it's, you know, they will need to want to work with you. (laughs) So if they, you know, if, and, and it could be even if they want to work with you, but they have way too many graduate students. And so they won't have time for you, or if they're just about to retire and you won't make it through the program, you know, those are all things that you want to know. (laughs) So I'm saying knowing as much as you can about your advisor. And if, if they're graduating students at a regular pace and if their students like working with them and all that would be a really important thing. And the other thing I would say um, for my field or for similar fields is to really investigate what kind of stipends and fellowships and um, scholarships that they have, because it's just not worth it to go into debt for, fields that you know don't have really huge paychecks at the end so you know when you know you're going into medical school and you know that's expected that you're going to take a really big student loan out or some you know Mm -hmm. something like that but at the end that you're going to be working a long time and you'll have a, a bigger paycheck to pay that off that makes sense but it really doesn't make sense in fields where you're, you're not going out and making, you know, $200,000, um, annually. And so I think not going into debt is the best way to do it. So if you can find the best way to make your application as strong as it needs to be, and to find the place that has fellowships and stipends, and there are a lot of great graduate programs that expect you to be teaching and being a TA grading, 
doing a lot of things that also give you experience, but then allow for, you know, they cover your tuition if you're doing those things and then they let you teach. Those are, that's just all to your benefit because then you're, you're not going into debt and you're also learning more as you're in the program. So that would be my best advice is to try to go, try to investigate and go into as little debt as possible when you're looking at your graduate programs. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and that would apply, I think, not just for art history, but for many, many fields, right? You're, mm-hmm. You could find a program where it ticks those boxes. You, you like the people you'd be working with. They are offering funding for you, mm-hmm. and they may be offering a stipend as well. So your schooling will be paid for, and you'll be paid a stipend. You won't be making a lot of money, and you'll be living pretty frugally, frugally but yeah. you're not, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. But you will not be accruing extra debt to get that degree. Yeah, and I, I feel like that that was very liberating for me because you know, it was many years that I was living very frugally, <laughs> very mm-hmm, kind of, right. okay, how much money am I going to make? And what can I do? And what do I need to pay um, just to, to kind of make do? But it was really liberating for me because, you know, graduate school was grueling. And it was very stressful on so many levels. I, um, mm-hmm. and if I would have had the addition of a, a huge amount of debt on my back, um, that would have been really hard. I feel like all along the way, it was it was really liberating for me to feel like if this doesn't work out, I can make a different choice. I can go in a different yeah. direction. And I didn't ever decide to do that, but mentally it was helpful for me <laughs> that I yes. that I could. And, and that I didn't, you know, I hadn't invested so much that I couldn't do that. So, you know, that might, might not be the same for everyone, but for me, that was really helpful. And, um, it was helpful coming out when I was looking for jobs as well. Just, um, I think the better you are in a, you know, financially, the less stress you'll, you'll have, and it can be really difficult when you finish graduate school um I mean and, and you may have questions further about this but you know when you finish you're hoping to get that tenure track job or or the museum job or, or whatever it is you're looking for and it can really take a little while to find that position you may be doing a couple of one year positions or visiting positions you know the kind of equivalent of postdocs you're doing a couple of things mm-hmm before you might find a permanent position. And um, so I think, you know, those are just the less debt that you have, probably the better off you're going to be. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Um, So once you finished graduate school, you went, you did go into a tenure track position. Is that right? Well, yeah. Well, my first I worked for uh, at the University of Tennessee for two years first. So I finished, you know, I kind of was defending my dissertation and had my car all packed and hopped in the car and drove from Pennsylvania down to Tennessee and started teaching the next week there. And I got a one year, I had a one year visiting position there. And so they Mm -hmm. um, often just had, one-year positions where they would take recent graduates and 
teach some of their um, intro level art history classes. And uh, I think they let me select another. I think I was teaching a couple of 202 classes and maybe a 19th century Europe class. And I, I was teaching a handful of classes for them. And that was great because I, it gave me a little bit more time to, um, I was kind of putting the final touches on my dissertation after I defended and I could kind of finish all of that up and then really get on the tenure track market. And it took me another, so I taught there for a year and then they were able to renew that position for another year. They had one of the, their Americanists left. And so I was still, I stayed and taught a couple of more entry level art history classes and also their uh, American art history course. And so I was there for two years and then I got my tenure track position at Ohio Wesleyan University. And honestly, that was just a dream come true for me. I, you know, did all the interviewing for the tenure track jobs and it can just really depend on who's retiring and randomly what positions open up. You really have no way of knowing. And I think that's one thing I didn't totally understand, or I wish I would have understood a little bit better when I began my journey that you have often very little control over where you might live the rest of your life, depending yes. on where a tenure track position will open up. And that's so true. You know, you're just, um, uh, you know, you are so eager to get in and to be teaching and to be doing your research and to get that tenure track position, but you never know where that might be. It might be somewhere great and it might be even somewhere great, but that is very far from family or friends. I, I mean, that is a guarantee that it's going to be somewhere different. And, you know, if you have a partner or a spouse, um, that can also be tricky if they have a job, can they get that where you're going? Um, you know, there, right. there are just a lot of factors there that can be kind of complicated. And I don't think that I fully really understood that. I, and maybe I knew that, but it until I was actually applying for those jobs that you're applying for a job in Vermont and then in uh, Arkansas and Mississippi and Iowa and um, Washington, you're just kind of applying all over, hoping that something will turn out. And, you know, that's the biggest say that you have, really. <laughs> so right. I, I felt like I was so, so lucky when I got my tenure track position. And it was at Ohio Wesleyan University, which is in Delaware, Ohio. And um, it was, it was, again, a really a dream job for me, because I'd always said that I wanted to teach in a kind of small liberal arts college where your classes were small and you had really great relationships with your students and that while you were expected to publish you were also still expected to teach well and to invest in your students and spend time with them and um, that's not always how it is at an r1 institution a big university research institution um, the teaching is not always emphasized. And so I really want, I really loved being at a small um, liberal arts college like Ohio Wesleyan. And I must say that I loved being there. I thought the students were wonderful. And I 
people loved getting to know them. And I loved the environment that you would have students in your classes. And then it was such a close knit uh, college feel that your students would come up, you know, a student would come up to me after class and say, I'm having my, my swim meet is later this week. We'd love it if you came and see us. And so, you know, you would go and there would be a bunch of faculty there and, um, you know, faculty and students really kind of supported each other. And it was very, that was the community was the faculty and the students. So I loved that environment. It was really wonderful. And I thought that I would be there kind of forever. So I, you know, I'd land. Yeah, but you, 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 you made a career switch, right? Yeah, I did. So I, I thought that I would be there forever. And that's kind of what you do is you land in a tenure track job and then, you know, you kind of just burrow down and that's where you're going to be. And I really thought I would be in Ohio and teaching there for the rest of my career. And and um, and then, you know, I did make a pretty d- dramatic shift um, when the director of the Museum of Art contacted me and um, said that there was going to be a position opening up at the museum to head up their educational programming and to help with their curating and would I be interested and honestly, first I, I said no, <laughs> you know, I'm really in my dream job right now. Um, but, uh, I kind of started thinking about it more and more and decided that it was something that I wanted to pursue. And partly this was really about family and, you know, your kind of your personal life, because while I loved the tenure track position at Ohio Wesleyan, um, I was really, I felt kind of isolated there, um, on my own Mm -hmm. and because I'm single, um, you know, I was just coming home to Utah to visit family and siblings and relatives and then going back. And it, I, I just started to feel a kind of a pull to come back. And I'd been away from Utah for about 12 years at that point. And you miss a lot of family events and birthdays and celebrations. And I felt like it maybe was time to be closer and have a little bit more support from family and to be able to support a little bit more. So that was a personal decision I made and, you know, it felt really right for me. Um, and it it obviously might not be right for other people. People were shocked, um, (laughs) that I left my tenure, (laughs) tenure track position. And I understand that because I did love it. And, um, you know, people don't just leave. I had been there for three years at that point and had really positive reviews and, you know, things were on track um, for moving forward um, for tenure. But I, I made that shift um, to leave that tenure track position and then come work at the museum full time. And, um, you know, I, I, Again, that was a, uh, it felt like the right decision for me. And there are pros and cons to both um, the positions in the museum job that I took. It's a year round kind of a job. So as opposed to a faculty position where you're really teaching, you know, kind of in the fall and winter, spring semesters, uh, and you have more of your summer flexible the museum right. job is, you know, kind of all year. So right. I knew that going in. Um, and 
that, you know, can be kind of a downside that it doesn't have the same kind of flexibility in terms of, you know, when you're a faculty member, you obviously have the times that you're teaching your classes um, and times that you're available for office hours, but you can also work from home quite a bit, or you can schedule your doctor or dentist appointments, you know, kind of as you will, there's a lot of flexibility there. Um, So, you know, the trade-off in the museum life, there really isn't that same kind of flexibility. It's a kind of, you know, here every day um, in the office um, through the summer. And, um, but, you know, the, on the, on the kind of positive side of that, I loved getting back and being actually working with the art objects and working with artists personally for exhibits, you know, that's very exciting. And it also was, um, you know, there is a lot of pressure to publish in in the tenure track life. And um, in the museum world, I, uh, you know, there's a, we do museum publications and catalogs and, um, and I think we're hoping here at at the museum to do more of those even in the future than we have. Um, But it's not the same kind of, um, that you must be doing those the way that you do, that you must to get tenure and, uh, in the way that that's required and your life yeah, and, the faculty yeah and your your livelihood is going to depend on whether that gets published yeah. or not that's a that is a lot of pressure to so deal you know it can kind of depend because i i have uh, good colleagues and friends who just adore the publishing part and you know that's yeah. their passion anyway so that doesn't feel like a pressure that they don't like but um but for me, that was a, a big relief to not have that pressure to, you know, open up the possibility of doing some of that, but that I didn't have to be doing that all the time. So, you know, again, there are a lot of sure. pros and cons in both in in both roles. And I am the kind of person that I, I really love variety and a lot of possibility. So um, it, it was really rewarding for me to, you know, work as a faculty member full time um, for a handful of years and then to kind of shift to the museum world and have different exhibitions coming up all the time and try to, you, you almost have to become an expert on new things for each, each exhibition. And I love the variety of that. And because I'm working at a university museum, I also get to teach, um, a class each semester. That's, you know, kind of something that I've elected to do that I really enjoy doing. Um, because I love teaching so much. So for me, this is yeah. kind of the best of both worlds here. That's, it really does sound like a great fit for you. I want to switch gears for just a minute and ask you a little bit about art, um, because you are an expert on art. So <laughs> do you, um, do you have a favorite artist? You know, that is the, the toughest question. I think so hard <laughs> to choose. I, I probably would just have to say, you know, my uh, my favorite area of art is the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so 19th century um, France um, is what I'm drawn to the most and particularly women artists. So I love working on artists like Evo Gonzalez and Rosa Bonheur. Um, women that even Mary Cassatt, women who were kind of working against a lot of odds and um, Mm. producing art despite not getting a lot of societal support. 
So I'm often drawn to that period. I think it's a really interesting period. Um, and um, France has been, I'm, I'm drawn to the culture and the art for many, many reasons. But I will also say that I am kind of curious about a lot of areas. So American art as well and contemporary artists. So it's so hard to choose a favorite, Andrea. I just don't think I can. <laughs> <laughs> that is perfectly fine. I, I know that you have had some really great experiences. You've been able to take groups of students over to Europe and looked at museums. Yeah. And I want to know if you've had like any experiences that really stand out in your mind as like, just one of those things that you absolutely adored um a, a particular group or a particular museum or um something you know I love the study abroad experiences that I've had those were really meaningful to me as a student so it was super rewarding to be able to to instruct and be be it on a kind of the teaching side of some study abroads and to take students throughout Europe and to see all those museums. I think there's just nothing like standing in front of the artwork and having it kind of come to life for students in a way that you can only imagine when you're in the classroom looking at the reproduction, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's Absolutely. Just, you know, kind of a, a whole different thing. Um, and I feel like, you know, so many experiences where that the artwork just kind of came to life. Um, one of my favorite experiences um, was, and this wasn't actually on a study abroad, but this was when I was in France doing um, my dissertation research. And I um, was mostly in Paris, but then I would kind of go around different places depending on um, trying to find different things for my dissertation. But I took a weekend once and went off to the city of Colmar, France, which is this really interesting city that um, is in the region of Alsace. And it belongs to France, but it kind of had, um, because it's really on the edge um, between France and Germany, it had kind of gone back and forth a couple of times and, um, been part of the Franco-Prussian War and it has a complicated history, which means that when you go through the city of Colmar, you see both French and German culture. So you hear both languages being spoken and you see foods from both cultures, which I find just um, so fascinating and compelling. I love that. And um, yes. one of the, the, really famous pieces that's in the city of Colmar is called the Eisenheim altarpiece. And um, I had studied it for many, many years. And it's by an artist whose name is Matthias Grunwald. And he um, painted this massive altarpiece that had, that has various opening pieces. So you can, if you kind of imagine if it's closed, it looks one way and then you kind of open it up and you see additional images and then you open it up again and there's more so it's kind of this wow. massive and really beautiful complicated multi-piece um altarpiece and i had i had seen it in images before but i um being able to see it in person 
it's in a museum in Colmar now um, that they've connected to an old church. So you go through the museum and then you walk through part of the church um, and it's really in the nave of the church that they have set up now the altarpiece and they've taken it apart so that you can see all of the parts um, and see it in person. And it just was, uh, you know, one of those kind of spellbinding experiences where you stand and look and um, it it is even better than you might have imagined uh, in person. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really an incredible piece. I don't know if there's a way on your podcast to kind of connect to different images, but I could send you some images of it. Definitely. I would love that. I'll put that in our show notes okay. for sure. So Jana, I'm really curious about what you think is the best way to approach a museum as a visitor. Do you try to, would you recommend that people, um, you know, try to see everything they can kind of do a quick walkthrough or is it best if you can really devote and do a deep dive um, in one particular area? Yeah, great question. I mean, sometimes this will depend on where you are and what time frame you sure. have, etc. cetera. Um, but I would recommend smaller chunks in, in a museum. If you can, if you can go for just an hour uh, or just smaller amounts of time. And instead of becoming overwhelmed, often we might be in, you know, a city that you haven't been to. And so you have this one day that you're going to see all of the Louvre collection <laughs> right. in Paris, which of course Impossible. is overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. And museum fatigue is a real thing, right? Your feet start getting hurt, you start to hurt, and then you, you forget what you're seeing and, yes. uh, you know, it kind of becomes overwhelming. So if you can slow down, see less, but appreciate it more and do it in kind of smaller segments, I think that's one of the best ways to really appreciate what it is that oh, you're seeing. Oh, I love seeing. that. See, see less, appreciate more. That's a great mm -hmm. uh, thing to keep in mind. So because you are such an expert on art and I just felt like this was such a great opportunity to find out like what your favorite um, museums are in different cities. I thought I would ask you, um, I would name a city and then I yeah, like you that. could tell me um, one or two of your favorite museums, if that's okay. No, that's fantastic. And in fact, this is so fun because with the pandemic, we, none of us have been able to travel yes. very much. So it's just kind of imagining <laughs> if we could go off to places where we would That's like right. <laughs> and maybe for people that are anticipating a fun trip in the future. In the future. They could yeah. put one of these mm -hmm. museums on their list. So we have to start with Paris. Yes. Well, Paris, of course, is the hardest for me because that is, uh, you know, where I did a lot of my dissertation research and I just, you know, have a deep, deep love for Paris. So it's hard to of choose. Course. But as a 19th century scholar, I would have to go with the Musée d'Orsay because it focuses on the story of 19th century art. Um, so that would be my just absolute number one museum in Paris. But I, I think, you know, it's it's so great if you have time to do, you know, a big one like the Musée d'Orsay and then some smaller museums like the Rodin Museum is a favorite. And another, the Musée Marmottin is one that has Monet's Impression Sunrise, which gave Impressionism its its name. And it has a 
smaller collection, some lovely impressions pieces. And I love those smaller museums that just feel a little less crowded. Oh, that's great. I love those too. That's a really good recommendation. Okay. How about New York? Um, New York is another one with so many, uh, you know, options, but I am never disappointed at the Met. So I think the Met is always a must see. And it's another one that you can kind of take in in increments, um, depending on your interest level uh, or where they are. If it's Asian art or Egyptian or their Greco-Roman collection, I always go to the 19th century, of course, but, um, but they have so many wonderful things. So the Met is a definite but I also love the Frick, which is just kind of down the street from the Met and in the the villa uh, house of the Frick family that's been transformed into a museum. And they have really a, a beautiful collection. You can almost imagine parties or things happening there in the courtyard and in the smaller rooms. So I think the intimate scale of some of the gallery spaces there is really charming. Oh, that sounds so great. I've been to the Met and absolutely loved that, but I have not been to the Frick. I would love to go there. Um, how about London? London. Well, uh, the National Gallery is another one that is just, you know, massive, but um, so impressive. I think I, there are so many pieces that were just transformative to me in their collection as a, as a young student mm. um, going through the National Gallery. Uh, and most of the England collections are free, so that makes them, you can go back again and oh, again. So cool. I love that. Um, the National Gallery, I would, I would say. And then the Tate Britain. Uh, has a wonderful 19th century collection and um, they have a pre-Raphaelite collection that I think is is so really probably the best collection of pre-Raphaelites all in one place and um, and it's a really lovely to oh, visit. that sounds amazing how about um, Amsterdam Amsterdam for sure the Rijksmuseum where you can kind of see a lot of wonderful Dutch masterpieces they're restoring Rembrandt's Night Watch there right now. Um, so that's a, a do not miss. Mm. And I would say the Van Gogh Museum too. I, I That one is also kind of bigger and tends to be crowded as well. But um, I think unmissable if, if you're oh, there. Oh, <laughs> definitely. If you're in Amsterdam, Van Gogh seems like the thing to see. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How about Rome? Okay, Rome. I Of course, everyone goes to the Vatican. The Vatican. So... You can't, you can't right. miss that. But my, one of my favorite museums or galleries in Rome is called the Borghese. Mm. And it's part of a, there's beautiful gardens and a park. And then it is also a villa that was transformed. It was owned by a cardinal and then transformed into a museum. And it has a wonderful collection of Bernini's sculptures mm. And um, he, people may be familiar, he did um, a really powerful statue of David from the Bible, kind of in the midst of throwing a stone oh. for, to hit Goliath. Yeah. And um, that, that one is there. And um, just a lot of other wonderful sculptural pieces. And I, the Borghese, I think you can just get lost walking around and seeing this 17th century sculpture that is really oh, that's so great it's making me want to go google all of these museums and look at the artwork yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, it's wonderful. And that one, you need a ticket to go a little in advance. Okay. Um, you know, can get a ticket online and then they kind of control the crowds. So it's a little smaller. Which is probably really common in a lot of these museums, especially with COVID or even maybe post-COVID, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How about Berlin? You know, <clears throat> Berlin is another one that has kind of so many museums. Um, I would imagine. um, Yeah. There's, there's kind of a a place called museum Island in Berlin um, where there's just kind of a a whole collection of museums, somewhat like, you know, New York fifth Avenue that has sort of several museums as you walk down the street. So Berlin has that as well. Um, And uh, you know, the, I, I would say just go there to see oh, all the museums, museums at Museum they Island. Have, they have, <laughs> yeah, they have uh, uh, the Noyes Museum and the Pergamon Museum. Um, you know, some of these, Germany has a really great, great collection of ancient and contemporary art. Mm. So you, you can get a, a sense of, of a little bit of everything when you're there. Oh, that's so cool. How about two more, L.A. and then we'll talk about museums in Utah. Okay, great. Yeah, LA, I um, worked at the J. Paul Getty Museum when I was, before I finished my dissertation. I was uh, a graduate um, intern there and worked in the exhibitions department. And it was just such an amazing experience that the Getty has a dear place in my heart. Mm. I feel like kind of taking that tram up the architecture is beautiful, the way that you kind of go in and out of the buildings to see art and then vistas of L.A. and walk through the gardens. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, kind of an experience, which I think is just always, there's always something new to explore I there. love that. That sounds great. And it's, it's closer to those of us who live in the West, so than yeah, maybe some yeah. of these others. Some, yeah, some of these that are a little bit further out, right? Exactly. And now, especially for those of us that do live in Utah, we actually have quite a few museums here. And I want you to tell us some of your favorites, but then definitely tell us about what's going on at the MOA, your own museum. Yeah. Um, At the MOA, I'm so happy to say that we recently reopened after being closed for almost six months during the the COVID pandemic. So we opened um, in August again. And so it's really lovely to have people back into the museum safely with masks and social distancing. And we, on October 30th, 30th just opened up a new exhibition called far out the west Recine, mm. which is photography by victoria sambuneris and she's a new york-based photographer who uses traditional film so she's still developing film and she uses a large scale camera so it almost looks like something that you would see in earlier centuries um, with a big this big camera on a tripod mm. And she prints these beautiful images, mostly landscapes. So this exhibition is landscapes of Utah and the West. And they're always landscapes that kind of show something really beautiful and unique, like our salt flats or the red rock of Utah, but also the way that it's been influenced by modern life. So often you might see a road going through the work or a train crossing through or um, images of part of our mining 
uh, areas. So she kind of shows our, our human impact as well. Oh, that sounds so interesting. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think it's thought provoking. I think she shows the beauty of modern technology as well as sometimes the damage of that. So um, I, I think it's a really interesting exhibition and it will be up at the museum through until may so there's there's plenty Plenty of time time. for for people to come see it yeah for people to come see it but so of course the the moa is is uh, my favorite since i work there but utah really i think our our museum and our art scene is is growing and um i love going in whenever i get a chance to the umfa at the university of utah campus Mm. Um, and also the UMOCA, the um, Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, Is that downtown uh, Salt Lake City? Yeah, that's in downtown Salt Lake City. And um, Laura Hurtado is the the new director there f- um, for the past about probably a year now. And they do changing exhibitions of contemporary artists. They had recently one up of artists responding to COVID. Oh, wow. Um, which I thought was really powerful and um, interesting. So that one is is um, a, a great one that I love to visit as as time allows in Salt Lake. And and I also love going into galleries in downtown mm. Salt Lake, um, Modern West Fine Art or the Phillips Gallery. Um, there there's a lot that are kind of small, but um, and. I, I'm sure they'll start again. They often have, I'm, I'm not sure if they're doing it right now, but they often have a kind of first Friday or I've seen uh, that. Gal- yes. gallery hops, uh-huh. right? Where you can kind of go and they stay open late and we'll have new exhibitions. And I think um, that's a, a really fun thing to do. Um, I know a lot of other cities do that and I'm glad that Salt Lake and Park City has one as well. Um, so I think those are, are great opportunities to, to see some of the artwork, um, by contemporary artists that are working and living among us. That's such a um, great, so those are fun things. Yes. That's such mm-hmm. a great suggestion. Thank you for uh, giving us all of those um, great tips on museums and where to go and what to look for. Um, yeah. This has been so great, Jana. I really appreciate your time and it's been so fun to reconnect with you. And yeah, I was just hoping um, as we wrap up, if you could give, us like one piece of career advice for really I mean it could be someone specific to art history but but maybe also something in general yeah I mean I think this this might sound a little obvious or maybe cliche but I would just say to always give it your all give it your best um, no matter what you're doing and I mean, even if as a, you know, as an intern or if you're in an entry level or kind of lowly um, unpaid positions um, to always be working as hard as you can be the one that is offering to do a little bit more or is kind of paying attention to see where the needs are. Because I think those developing those skills for working hard, for really uh, magnifying your um, skills and giving your best will spill over, I think, into whatever you do. And um, I work with periodically a lot of students who are both volunteers and um, interns or who have jobs at the museum. And the thing that really stands out is those that are going to, even if it's not something they're going into, or if it's 
not as exciting um, a job as it may, as they may want, that they really do their best at that. And I know that then wherever they go, they'll, they'll be successful. Oh, I think that's such a great piece of advice because you never know where your next move might be and what opportunities could come from what you're doing right now. Even if you think it's slowly and it's not going to amount to anything, there's just so many opportunities that can come from working hard. Yeah, it's so true. And and even if you just end up in a completely different field, but you need that reference or that recommend and having given your best at something is, you know, will never... That will never be a bad thing. That will always serve you um, in the future. That's right. Thank you, Jana. This has been so fun. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. Let's do it again. (laughs) Thanks for joining me today on Career Chat. Any links we talked about will be in the episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at careerchatpod. And if you like this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcast. See you next time.